leaving everything you know behind. That's got to be one of the hardest things to do in life, especially if you're just a kid. Growing up, it was a lot more confusing and I only ever felt like I was a whole person. It feels like I have two different narratives always influencing me. That sense of being caught between two places, it never goes away. You've always got one foot in the country you left behind and one foot in your new home as you adapt and try to understand a whole new way of life. And that's on top of trying to figure out life in general. Imagine that queasy feeling of the first day of school or a new job, and now multiply it by 10, at least. Today on Countless Journeys, the stories of three women who had to figure out a whole new life and a whole new identity before they even knew who they really were. All three were young when they first set foot on Canadian soil. You'll hear about what it was like to start from scratch and how they dealt with trying to fit into what could at times feel like a whole new world. Playwright Trey Anthony explores these themes in her plays. I open one of my plays with, I say I come from women who leave their children behind. Trey was born in London, England in 1983. She was eight years old when her mother left her and moved to Toronto in search of a better life for their family. I don't know if it's trauma or if I don't want to recall it, but I don't have a clear understanding or even like a one significant conversation of my mother saying she was leaving. I just remember knowing that she was in Canada. It felt like I got up one day from the next and my mother was no longer there. Trey Anthony is here to talk about what it was like to arrive in Canada as a 12-year-old girl, what it was like to move in with her mother after years apart, and how she chased her dream to build a life in the arts in her new home. Plus... I came when I was five, so I was really young. I think if you, like, maybe come when you're 15 or even later, you see your birth country as a home rather than being kind of split between. Gabriella Hong was born in Seoul, South Korea. Now she lives in Ottawa, where she works in computer technology. Gabriella believes arriving at such a young age had a huge impact on her experience of immigration. She uses a software analogy to describe what she means. It's different if you're born here. We call them the 2.0 generation, and I'm like kind of stuck in between, so I'm the 1.5. And the students who come at a later age, the 1.0 generation. Today on Countless Journeys, Generation 1.5. Countless Journeys. I was fresh, you know, and I was given the opportunity to, to do and learn whatever I wanted. My grandmother and my family were part of that working class population that people refer to as blue collar workers. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. At that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother. We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. We live in a country where your beginning has really not much 
to do with your end. And what you do in between is up to you. Welcome to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. It's great to have you with me. Trey Anthony burst onto the Canadian theatre scene in 2001 with her play The Kink in My Hair. It was featured at the Toronto Fringe Festival that year. The Kink in My Hair is set in a West Indian hair salon in Toronto. It's all about the struggles and the triumphs of contemporary Canadian black women, capturing the stories of eight women and girls through their conversations at the salon. To tell those stories, Anthony drew on her own experiences, as well as on those of women in her community. The Kink in My Hair became the first play written by a Canadian to be performed at the Princess of Wales Theatre in Toronto. It also became the first television series in Canada to be written and created by a black woman. Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway spoke with Trey Anthony, and Tina joins me now. Hey there, Tina. Hi, Paolo. Thank you. And such a real treat to have had the chance to speak with Trey about her work and, of course, her entire career. <laughs> I can't wait to, to, to get to know more about her. She's such a, a, a big name on the Canadian theatre scene. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, so much of her work is informed by her experiences as a young girl immigrating to Canada, as well as the lives of other girls and women who have lived through that massive change. It is. You know, she's done a great job of really capturing the experience of immigration, especially the lives of immigrant women and their families. And she has a real talent for communicating that experience to Canadians really from all walks of life. Now, Trey came to Canada from London, but her family has lived a double immigration story because Trey's family's roots are in Jamaica. That's right. Her maternal grandmother left Jamaica in the 1960s and she headed uh, for London, England, and she had to leave her children behind for a few years back in Jamaica, uh, including Trey's mother, before sending for them to join her in England. Wait, isn't isn't that what Trey's mother had to do? Didn't she just do the same thing when, when she came to Canada? Yeah, it's a real echo uh, across the generations. Now, Trey's mother left England for Canada when Trey was a little girl, leaving her kids behind until she could afford to bring them over. History repeating itself. Yeah. And that, that kind of thing must really leave a strong imprint on a family across generations. Yeah, and, and that's where our conversation really started. Trey spoke to me about that pattern of mothers leaving their kids behind in search of a better future. My grandmother was born and raised in Jamaica, and she had five children at that time. And she left in the 60s, late 1960s. She came over to England, and she left her children behind, um, which included my mother, and my mother at that time was six years old, and she was reunited with my grandmother in England. My grandmother sent for her when she was 12 years old. I open one of my plays with, I say I come from women who leave their children behind. Um, years later, my mother left for Canada and left me with my grandmother, and my brother and I were separated from my mother for four years. So when my mother left, I was eight. And then I was reunited with my mother um, at age 12. And they were working as domestic workers or were they working in what capacity? 
My grandmother was definitely working um, when she first came as a domestic worker. She came over and did domestic work. She then eventually got a job, um, quote unquote, a government job for London Transport. And she worked at nights and her job was to sweep the trains and clean the trains at night. And then my mother left because she felt there were much more opportunities for her in Canada. Do you remember her kind of preparing you for the idea that she'd be leaving? I don't know if it's trauma or if I don't want to recall it. Um, But I don't have a clear understanding or even like one significant conversation of my mother saying she was leaving. I just remember knowing that she was in Canada and like, like it felt like I got up one day from the next and my mother was no longer there and you know but she always kept in touch via phone calls letters my mother would send me a lot of packages from Canada and I remember like getting like all of these fancy dresses and that's how we stayed in touch but I don't recall a significant single conversation of, oh, I'm leaving. And what was life like with your grandmother once your mom had departed for Canada? Was she still working? Yeah, my grandmother definitely was still working, working quite hard. Um, You know, things were tight, money was tight, but we, you know, my grandmother owned her own home. She worked a lot of jobs. I often recall and say, Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work at night. And so that was something that really stayed with me for many years when I heard of people talking about blue collar worker. And I realized that my grandmother and my family were part of that working class. And I remember like there was always a sense of pride though in our house. Like I remember recalling a teacher saying to me, now that your mother is left and your grandmother has all those mouths to feed, you can um, receive free lunches. And I, I remember running home really excited to tell my grandmother that I could get free lunches at school. And my grandmother just being outraged and just very mad and saying, you know, you tell your teacher you're not hungry. Right. And that was something that I remember that there was always a sense of pride that we will make it and we don't take handouts or anything like that. And so as much as I knew and could feel that money was definitely a concern in the household, uh, there was a sense of pride and secrecy around that. Um, So it was something that wasn't discussed. What do you remember as being your kind of first idea of what Canada was or what, what it was like? I was about to go into what would be like the equivalent of high school in England because you start early at 12. And so I was really excited about going into high school and getting a new uniform and going to another school with my friends. And so I was very upset and I was very reluctant and I didn't want to go. And I remember my mother saying to me, um, how she enticed me to come to Canada was the idea of that there was a lot of snow and we would be doing a lot of winter sports and tobogganing and ice skating. And that was very enticing for me because my mother knew that I really loved watching ice skating on TV with the Olympics. And so that kind of made me change my mind a bit about coming. 
And how did that idea of Canada align with the reality of, of what you arrived at? I think the biggest thing for me is I went from a very structured, built-in family unit where my grandmother would be like, everybody comes to dinner at six o'clock and we eat dinner as a family. And, you know, Sundays were big meal times and there was always someone in the house. And, you know, there was never any time to be alone. And the realities of when I came um, was that my mother was working a lot, two or three jobs. Um, There was a lot of alone time. My brother and I were latchkey kids and I would come home watch Three's Company, then Oprah, and then cook dinner for my brother and I. And so we went from having really a lot of supervision to barely any supervision and a lot of alone time. And I was really lonely and I really missed having that family support and having that nurturing. Um, It just wasn't there and my mother didn't have the time to provide that for us. So that was something that was a real big shock for me. We moved into a very working class neighborhood, Rexdale, and I was living in a building, Toronto housing. And that's something that I had never done before. I've lived in a building before. We always lived in a house and everyone knew the neighbors. And so that was different. And also too, you know, I was 12 turning 13. And I think that age is difficult for anybody, much less being a child who's coming to assimilate into a new country, meeting a woman who is supposed to be her mother, who she has had no contact with, very limited contact with for the last four years and going through puberty and changes. So it was a lot. Like it was, now that I look back on it, I realize how much was expected of me and yet nobody really acknowledged how much change was going on in my life. And at some point you move out of Rexdale, is that right? Yes. My mom bought a house in Brampton and I attended Notre Dame High School in grade 10. And that was in grade 10, we moved there. The move to Brampton really was something that I think really changed the trajectory of my life in the sense of we moved to a middle-class neighborhood. Um, There were kids there who also came from a lot of wealth as well. I had a teacher named Miss Horvat for grade 10 drama and grade 11 who really took me under her wing and saw something in me. And it was in her class where I learned about theater drama. She really encouraged me and told me I was talented. We would write plays and she encouraged me to do that. And it was the first time I feel in my life that someone said to me, you are really talented and you could do this as a professional career. Can you bring me into a moment, if there is one that, that you can pinpoint, where you were alone with a page and writing something and it just felt like it was you were in your flow and, and that your body and mind were, were kind of meant to, to be this? I think it really happened for me in English class in grade 10. I also did Um, this novella writing project in grade 11, where we had to write a novella. novella. 
And I just remember just being really immersed in that world and knowing I wanted to tell stories. Um, I was reading and I had to write a paper on Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. And that was also the first time I had encountered queerness um, in any kind of literature and Black queerness. And that really just intrigued me of like who James Baldwin was. And um, I remember just writing that and a response. And then you had to write a similar piece that would be a compliment to the book that you just read. And it was the first time that I ever wrote about queerness, about blackness, and just knowing that I had the freedom to do so. And that was really empowering for me and also to get complimented on my work and my writing and people saying that I was creative um, was also a very new experience for me. What was your relationship to your sexuality when you were growing up? Were you comfortable with it? Was your were you out? Definitely not. <laughs> I remember um I was quite the opposite. I had boyfriends. I was very boy crazy, especially before I moved to Brampton. I think because I had a knowing, but I would not acknowledge it that something was different with me. I then became much more promiscuous because I didn't have the adult supervision. And so a lot of my teen years was spent, um, had a very promiscuous quality to it um, of trying to get people to love me and especially boys to love me. And, and I think it, no, I think I remember being in grade 10 or 11 and I said to my best friend at the time, I said, I think I'm gay. And she was like, of course you can't be gay. You have a boyfriend. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and that was it. And I never thought about it or even explored it again until I was 27. And that's when I came out. But I knew um, I was drawn to gay literature. I knew I was drawn to gay stories. I know I had a curiosity of when I met, especially young boys who are just very effeminate and flamboyant in high school and everybody knew they were gay. I was very curious about them. Um, So I knew there was something happening, but also for me, queerness also looked very white. I didn't know any black people who were queer. And so that was another thing for me. Um, So I didn't think it was something that I could even be because I didn't know any people of color who were queer. And so it always seemed to be something very white, a very white ideal. And then I also was growing up in a Jamaican household and Jamaican culture. And and I don't want to say the entire Jamaican culture is homophobic. I would just say my family, who were Jamaican, were very homophobic. So I heard stuff and knew that this would not be something that would be welcomed or something that I could even consider happening in my house household. So I think I really suppressed a lot of my sexuality for many years because of that. And how did your family react to you coming out? My family, my mother is definitely, and my father are very accepting of my sexuality. Like my mother has met all of my partners. Um, My grandmother came to 
and understanding, um, I would say. And she accepted it, but would not acknowledge it. And it was something that we never talked about. And then even in her final days, one of the things that really has hurt me the most in this is my grandmother refused to see me in her final days um, when she was dying. And it was because she said she did not want to be around a lesbian. And she also wrote me out of her will because she did not want her money going to a lesbian, which was my partner at the time. And so as much as I can say I was out and I lived very proudly, um, and now, of course, my immediate family, my mother, my brother, my sister, um, my nephews, everybody is more than accepting and are wonderful. There was definitely things to this day that I'm still working through in regards to um, my grandmother and her way of giving love and her con- what I view as very conditional love of I can love you as long as you do the things that I want and be the person that I want or do not show me all sides of you because I can't handle that component of you. I can love this, but I can't love that about you. I had to then do the closure that I needed around that. And that is something that is continuous. It's not a final destination. There are some days I'm okay with it. And then there are some days that I'm reduced to tears around it because I never got a chance to say goodbye to her because of her own homophobia. One theme that does come up in your work is the emotional fallout of being an, an immigrant. Can you talk to me a little bit about what what some of the emotional fallout has been for you? For myself, the emotional fallout has been, and I've seen it, where there's definitely been an emotional distance between my grandmother and my mother than myself and my mother. And I think a lot of times, especially when we're talking about the immigrant story, people like to focus on the happy ending of, oh, you came to the land of wealth and milk and honey and opportunity. And what people fail to address is when you have been physically apart from your children, from your family, you have missed valuable years of someone's life. And essentially you are showing up now to meet a stranger and you're trying to capture that all over again and trying to pick up where you left off. And that doesn't happen. Um, I see it to this day of my sister who was raised with my mother at all times and who has never been separated from my mother has a different emotional bond and connection to my mother than I ever will. And and I definitely know it's because we missed those years. I also know um, in that there's also how do you deal with the resentment of being the ones who were left behind? How do you deal with your abandonment issues? How does that play out? Um, I know for myself, it's something that I'm constantly and continuously working on through therapy for many years of still dealing with that little girl who was left behind and how she now shows up as an adult and of how does that now play into how I pick and choose partners and how, how does that show up if I feel like I'm being needy? Is that me showing up as a grown woman or is that that little eight-year-old waiting for her mother and wanting to be chosen and seen? 
And so those are things that I really explore in my work. And also the idea of, I think there's a lot of judgment that is placed on women who leave their children behind or who are working mothers. And there's this kind of ideology of like all women are mothering under the same conditions. And I really like to point that out in my work that many women, especially women of color and especially immigrant women and especially working class women are mothering under far than less than ideal circumstances. And yet we are held to the same standards of women who have much more opportunities, much more support. And I think it's something that we really need to talk about, right? And just the systemic barriers that are put in place for women of color and Indigenous women as well to create these wonderful and amazing children and and be like, oh, well, you should do this as a mother and all your children are this. And yet nobody talks about how hard it is if you don't have the economical support in place to be the kind of mother that you want to be and what society expects you to be. And so those are things that I talk about a lot in my work. Um, Like even in How Black Mothers Say I Love You, the mother Daphne, when she was confronted by her daughter who said, you know, what kind of mother leaves her children behind? Like, Like, who are you? Like, who would do that? And she turned to her and Daphne said, you know, like, what did you want me to do? Put you on my back and carry you across the water? Like, I did it because I wanted you to have opportunities that I didn't have. I didn't want you to ever go to school hungry. I didn't want you to ever know what it's like to walk bare feet. I never wanted you to have to lay down with a man because you wanted money for your school books. And I think that is something that we don't talk about is that many women had no choice but to do this. Many immigrants leave because they had no choice. And yet no one talks about the repercussions of these choices. You spoke to your mom a little bit about that in terms of having her kind of see it from your perspective. Can Mm -hmm. you can you tell me a little bit about what that conversation was like and and how how it impacted her? Yes. Um, I recently wrote a memoir called A Black Girl in Love with Herself, and it's a self-help book. Um, around my own journey, around loving myself and um, how growing up, what that was like and the messaging that I got from my mother around being strong and not being vulnerable and getting back up. And um, before it went to the publisher, I felt really a need to make sure that my mother and my family read the book first before it went public. And so I sent the manuscript to my mother. And of course, in the book, I talk a lot about my childhood of this expectation of being second in command in my household, of going to the laundromat, of preparing meals for my brother, of being lonely, of my mother saying, you know, this is what is expected of you. And not being able to say like, you know, I'm 12 and I'm scared. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm lonely. And just being told that this is what I needed to do. And when my mother read the manuscript, one of the things that she said to me, she goes, I had no idea. She goes, I had no idea. I was this hard on you. And I had no idea 
that you were experiencing all of this. And I'm shocked. Like, I'm shocked. Even though I knew that this is what I was doing and leaving you guys, I don't know what I was thinking was happening to you guys. And I think what happens, and I realized from my mother once she read that, is a lot of moms don't want to deal with the reality of what their leaving does to their children, even when their children are in the same household as them, of being absent parents, because a lot of times they are in pure survival mode. And I know from my mother, she was in a survival mode of, I have these two children that I now need to look after. I have to give them clothing. I have to give them food. I, I have to make sure that you know they have the right prom dress. And for my mother, my mother really felt if she provided for us in the financial ways and in the material ways, that should have been enough. And I think reading the book for her really showed how what was missing in my life was a mom to me and who could hug me and who could say it's okay to be scared or just companionship or someone to be there to cook me dinner and to have those talks of how was your day. I missed out on all of that. And um, I think she didn't realize until she read that of, wow, you actually became this mini little woman in my household and I had no idea that you missed out on a whole childhood of what support and emotional support could look like for a child. You spoke of uh, your grandmother when she was uh, fighting cancer, also talking about um, this idea of forgiveness and that she felt that your mother had never forgiven her. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the role of forgiveness and just how you invite forgiveness into your life and how it's, it can also be a, a big struggle? When my grandmother was dying of terminal cancer, um, I was reading this book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. And I remember um, going to my grandmother and I said to her, Grandma, do you have any regrets about your life? My grandmother has always been this very stoic and very private woman. And um, I thought she would say something about like, oh, I regret that I didn't travel or I didn't get an education. And without missing a beat, she says, I regret leaving my children behind in Jamaica and especially your mother because she has never forgiven me. And she just started crying. And it was the first time I saw a level of vulnerability with my grandmother. It was the first time I felt that she had ever acknowledged what that separation and had done to our family and what it had done to the relationship or lack of relationship between her and my mother. And I realized she wanted to be forgiven. And um, in my own life, I feel what I work on the most around forgiveness when it comes to my grandmother and my mother is I sometimes often say to myself, these were women with little to no choice. And they did the best that they could under those circumstances. And before I used to hold them up to this different ideal and standard of being, well, they were, she was my mother. She should have known better. She was my grandmother. She should have known better, you know, and 
I think until you see the people in your lives as really fractured and hurt and scared and lonely people trying to just damn well do their best, um, that's the only way you can get to forgiveness is to be really at that place of being like they did the best with what limited resources they had. And even in the play, Daphne says to Claudette, and maybe you would have done differently and maybe you would have, you would have made different choices and maybe you would have been a better mother than I was, but I did my damn best with what I had. And I think, especially now being a mother myself, um, I, I now have a, a 10 month old son. I know that there are days when I just look at my child and go, oh my gosh, I'm failing at this. I am so failing at this. And I have way more resources than my mother and grandmother ever had. I have way more support, way more money than either of them ever had put together. And yet I still feel I'm messing this up and I'm not doing it well. And I know my son is going to probably be sitting in a therapist's office 20 years from now going, my mother did this, or maybe she worked too much. She was always writing. She was always doing interviews, right? So, you know, you just do the best what you can. And, um, but I think that's, and I'm hoping when he gets to my age, he will be a much more forgiving of my quote unquote failures or the way I didn't mother according to him in the best way possible. Right. So um, that's what I'm really learning in my life. It's to really just be much more tender with the women in my life, especially other black women and also tender with myself and being much more forgiving in that sense. That was playwright Trey Anthony in conversation with Countless Journeys producer Tina Pittaway. You know, one of the great things about creating a podcast with a museum is the fact that, well, you've got a whole museum at your disposal, so you can tap into an incredible wealth of materials. The historians at Pier 21 spend a lot of time speaking with Canadians from all backgrounds, interviewing them about their lives before and after they came to Canada. Those conversations are often recorded, and over the years, Pier 21 has amassed hundreds of stories, and they're all part of the museum's oral history collection. I've got a couple of stories for you now from that collection, the stories of two women, Mimi Sharif and Gabriella Hong. Gabriella was born in Korea. She came to Canada in 1999 with her older brother Marcel and her parents Alice and Gabrielle. Yes, in Korean I was normally known as Hong In Ui, or people pronounce it really quickly, they just call me Innie. But when I immigrated to Canada, I had to change my name because most people would have a hard time pronouncing my Korean characters. So my name took on the Roman Catholic version of Gabriella, since my father was named Gabrielle. Gabriella recorded her oral history in 2018, when she was 25. Mimi Sharif spoke with Pier 21 in 2014. She was 29 at the time and had been in Canada for five years. Mimi was born in Zimbabwe. 
She earned a law degree in Johannesburg, South Africa, and then moved to Canada to pursue a master's degree in gender studies at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. I'd never heard of it before, so I think I did a lot more research on where exactly I was coming to, and my dad kept making a point of reminding me. He was like, Mimi, this place has fog 200-and-something days of the year. Where are you going? Can you imagine arriving from Africa and experiencing Newfoundland weather? (laughs) Mimi and Gabriella have faced similar challenges, uh, really grappling with their sense of identity and belonging after arriving in Canada. As Gabriella mentioned, she was five when her family moved to Toronto. I remember going to school and being really scared that I couldn't speak the language, but turns out I could understand English immediately. It was this girl that came right up to me and said, Hi, what's your name? And I was like, Oh, I can't remember my name. Oh no, what should I say? <laughs> I can't use my green name. And I was kind of shied away from the the interaction, but I was really amazed how immediately I became immersed into the language and I just picked up everything. Mimi Sharif has spoken English all her life, but that didn't mean she didn't face linguistic challenges. She had a hard time understanding the Newfoundland accent. Um, First thing that I thought was I have no idea what everybody is saying. Like, it took a while for me to kind of get pick up what everybody was saying I was, I was like I don't understand where I am like I thought this was like, why does everybody have such a different accent and it's so it was, it was very difficult for me to like pick out what people were saying Mimi Sharif for Gabriella Hong even though she found the language divide fairly easy to bridge there were all sorts of cultural aspects between her Korean culture and her Canadian culture that she found confusing to navigate Um, So simple things like greetings, it feels like I have two different narratives always influencing me. And even the simple things like your everyday actions of how you greet someone. In Korea, you're supposed to bow. And there's like rules like how much degrees you bow shows how much level of respect you have for that person. And you just know depending on how old they are. And in Canada, I think the handshake or the wave or... Maybe the simple nod, I don't know. I started to question. I'm like, what's the right way? What's appropriate? Who do I bow to what? Should I just bow to Koreans and shake hands with um, North Americans? And it didn't quite fit because some Koreans were like me. And they found that weird. And But I can't make that assumption when you meet someone new, right? So simple things like that, I think, kept playing out in my life. And it was constantly confusing. It was just really hard, I think as a young child to see two completely different sets of behaviors and actions being rewarded in different ways. And I want it to become a full person where I can be embracing all cultures and every value in a meaningful way, but it, it didn't feel possible. I didn't feel like there was space for it. I came when I was five, so I was really young, so it had a big impact on me. But if you are more set, I think, if you, like, maybe come when you're 15 or even later, um, you're programmed to be more of your home. Like, you see your birth country as a home rather than being kind of split in between. So I think it's a little bit easier because you're already built as a person by then. But for more people like me, 
I think everyone really struggles, the first generation particularly. It's different if you're born here. We call them the 2.0 generation, and the students who come at a later age, the 1.0 generation, and I'm like kind of stuck in between, so I'm the 1.5. And I find that it's rare to find more children of my situation, so but I'm sure if I did meet them, they would definitely agree with me. And they probably have some different ways of how the similar themes played out in their lives. Gabriella Hong. You're hearing the stories of two women from Pier 21's oral history collection, Gabriella Hong and Mimi Sharif. Mimi Sharif lived in both Zimbabwe and South Africa before coming to Canada. Arriving here was a, a big cultural shift. The move to Newfoundland had a profound impact on her. It really made her think differently about her core identity, about who she was. Like the first thing um, that they ask is like, no, where are you from? And I was like, man, why did I find that so difficult when somebody's like, where are you from? So I'm like, am I from Zimbabwe? But then I say that and then they're like, but you have a British accent. And I was like, well, I don't really think it's a British accent. And I was like, well, I lived in South Africa. They're like, yeah, maybe it's South African. I was like, I'm definitely not South African, though. And then they're like, but you don't look, you're not, so you're African. You don't really look black. And I was like, well, Africans are different shades. There's white Africans. There's, like, it's all kinds of different Africans. And I was like, okay, so what am I? But one of the things that I think I became a lot more convicted and stronger in is saying that I was African. Like, that is something now that... Before, like, I don't think that was part of my identity. I even had a little little thing on my bracelet made out of the continent of Africa. So, I mean, like, I think now I've become very strongly, like, I'm African. So I think I've, I've become more African than I ever was before I came here. <laughs> so that's what I've done a lot of, I guess, since, since I've been here, like, forming your identity um, and I don't think I would have had that experience before. Like, I never used to think of myself as, I was like, well, I'm just Mimi. Like, you'd never think of yourself as, so where exactly are you from? So in that, in that sense, I think that this experience, like Newfoundland and coming here, has done that for me, which, which I think is great. That's Mimi Sharif. And you also heard the story of Gabriella Hong. Gabriella Hong calls her generation of people who've arrived in Canada at, at a young enough age to have a foot in two cultures or two countries. She calls that generation Generation 1.5 using a software analogy, and I think that's just a bang on. That's such a great way of capturing what that experience is like. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. Thanks to today's guests, and thanks to you for joining me for this episode of Countless Journeys. Countless Journeys is produced by Tina Pitaway for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. Today's episode was mixed by Natasha Aziz. To learn more about the museum, visit pier21.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, share, and follow. Bye for now. <laughs>